So, hi, can you please turn to Romans 8, 8 to 31. Yeah, so I'll be reading from there. Oh, Romans 15, sorry. <laughs> Romans 15, 8 to 31. Starting from verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the, whole, the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to uh, Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no, pl- no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that I that have received their, this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. 
I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Here ends the word of God. Well, our word today is ambition. And I would be very interested to get inside your head and see how you view that word. Are you dreading this sermon because you have a negative view of ambition? Or are you eager to hear what ambition from the Bible looks like? Even if you have a positive view of ambition, I realize I'm at a cultural disadvantage here, being an American speaking to you about ambition. Even if you look at it positive, you might have trepidation about hearing about this topic from me. Uh, But I want to share with you a bit of my journey on my perception of ambition. I grew up in a family that were not followers of Jesus, and they embraced the philosophy the life philosophy of let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So my family's life was all built around working just so that you could have enough money to eat a lot and to drink even more. So when I came to faith and started to read the Bible, I thought, yeah, some ambition in life is probably a good thing to want your life to count for something um, would, be, would be good. But then many years later, we moved to Washington, D.C., and for the first time, I saw up close, firsthand, what raw, unfiltered, unbridled, big boy ambition looks like. The ambition to gain more power, prestige, fame, material possessions. That kind of encounter started caused me to reevaluate, is ambition really a good thing to have in life or not, especially for a believer? So I started, I looked at scripture, what does scripture have to say about ambition? And it's interesting to note that ambition in the Bible can either be positive or negative. And the original language helps us a lot because the word for negative ambition is completely different from the word for a positive ambition. So the readers of the New Testament wouldn't have any trouble knowing is this good ambition or bad ambition. The word that the negative Greek word that's used for a negative ambition means a desire to put yourself forward. Any work that you do for gain, especially for your gain, for your benefit. This ambition is self-focused. It's ambition that tries to get us ahead in life, that gets us what we want. And this word in the New Testament occurs six times, and every time in the NIV it's translated selfish ambition. So it highlights how in English ambition is kind of an ambiguous word. We have to add a modifier to it to show that it's selfish ambition. Now, there's a completely different Greek word for ambition that's positive, and this word means to strive or to exert yourself out of a sense of love or a sense of honor. 
It's only found two times in the Bible. First uh, Thessalonians 4.11, and in our passage today. So it's a good study to do. I encourage you, look up all the, all the instances in the New Testament ambition, those eight occurrences, and see what you can learn from ambition, the positive kind and the negative, selfish ambition kind. Today we're going to be looking at Paul's ambition. How he exerted himself out of a sense of love for God and all that God had done for him. Before we look at his ambition in Romans 15, let's take a moment to pray and just express our dependence upon God and our need for him today. Lord, we ask of your mercy today that you would open our eyes and hearts to your word, that you would give us insight on how to prioritize our lives around a gospel-centered, gospel-driven ambition so that we can better glorify your wonderful name while we're here on earth. Amen. What was Paul's ambition? We read it in verses 20 and 21 of Romans 15. He states, It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told of him will see him, and those who have not heard will understand. Paul's ambition, this good kind of godly ambition, was to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. But what did Paul mean by this? What does he mean by preaching the gospel where Christ was not known? When Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he was in Corinth. Certainly in that big city of Corinth, there were people who, who still did not know about Christ. Why would Paul want to go somewhere else when there were still lost people right there in the city he's in of Corinth? Well, before we answer that, there's another perplexing and confusing statement made by Paul in this passage. In verse 19, he says, so from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, now that's modern-day Albania if you're trying to get your geography. From Jerusalem all the way to Albania, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It seems like a bold statement to him that he could say that he had fully proclaimed the gospel in that huge region where there really no lost people left that needed to be reached with the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Albania. That includes the modern countries of Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Greece, Bulgaria, and North Macedonia. How could Paul say in, in verse 23, but now there is no more place for me to work in these regions? That huge reason, from Jerusalem to Albania, there's no more work, no more place for me to work in these regions. Have you ever paused to just ponder how perplexing these statements are that Paul's making? 
it seems to me like there's always more ministry to be done. There's always more evangelism, more discipleship, more transformation of society for, by the gospel that needs to be done. So what exactly is Paul saying here? Well, we need to remember that Paul is speaking here as a missionary, not as a pastor. He's pointing out in his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not known the difference between the tasks and responsibilities of a missionary and that of a pastor or a local church. Now, this distinction is drawn out by a man named Vincent Donovan. He wrote a pretty significant book called Christianity Rediscovered. And he says, this concept of first evangelization lies at the heart of the distinction between missionary and pastoral work. The work of the church never ends. The work of a pastor never ends. Amen, Peter? That's right. It never ends. Maybe your wife will say amen. <laughs> There's always more evangelism. There's always more marriages that need counseling. There's always more discipleship to be done. There's, there's going to always be work for Southwest Evangelical Church to do until the day that Jesus returns. Now, this is why church planting was the main ministry of Paul as a missionary because he realized it was the ministry of the local church to reach that area. And Paul's calling was that of a missionary, not of a pastor. So he wanted to plant churches so that local pastors would continue on that local ministry. And that's what he had done from Jerusalem to Illyricum. That's why he had no more work left to do there because there were churches there and the churches were supposed to do the work in that area. He had the call of a missionary, and as a missionary, his ambition was the way that he knew God called him to strive and exert himself out of a sense of love was to go to those places where the gospel had not yet taken root, where people had no access, no opportunity to hear the gospel. That was the missionary task. This is why Paul's laser focused at, when he's writing this chapter on going to Spain. He mentions it in, two, in verse 24 and 28. Paul is a Roman citizen. In the, in the Roman Empire, Spain was the ends of the earth. It was the farthest eastern part of the Roman Empire. Beyond Spain, all there was was water. At that point, no one had gone across that water to find out that there was more people to be reached. But in Paul's mind, Spain was the ends of the earth. And he was passionate about wanting to see Acts 1-8 fulfilled in his lifetime. That when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Paul did that. He was a witness to Christ in Jerusalem. Then he went to Judea. Then he went to Samaria. And then he was, I've got to get to the ends of the earth. Everyone, all peoples have to hear this message. 
Paul's ambition to, was to go where Christ was not yet known. And that passion was captured by another missionary, a Scottish missionary named David Livingston. And he wrote this, in the vast plains to the north, I have sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. And David Livingston was passionate about having that as his ambition, to get to these villages and villages and villages that had not yet heard about Christ. The task of missions is not to go where there are lost people. Does that surprise you? Because there are lost people everywhere. And if a church exists there, it's that church's responsibility to reach the lost people around them. The responsibility of Southwest Evangelical Church is to reach the lost in your community, where you live, where your churches, lo churches are located, where you live, where you work. Your responsibility as a church is to reach those lost people around you. The task of missions, on the other hand, is to go where people have no access to the gospel, where, where they will likely go their whole life without ever meeting another Christian, where there's no church. If they have a Bible in their own language, they have no idea to, that it exists or where to go to get it, to, to purchase it or to have their own copy. This is the heart of God in missions. Paul had it to take the gospel where Christ was not yet known. This was the ambition of Paul. We need to stop and ask ourselves, what is our ambition? What are we passionate about in giving our energy and our service out of love to achieve or to gain? Before God, we have to be honest and ask ourselves: are the ambitions in my life right now, would Paul classify them as selfish ambition? Ambition that's for the work of purpose of gain, something that's gonna get me ahead? Or do we have a, the ambition like Paul, a desire to exert ourselves out of a sense of love, of a response to what God has done for us, an ambition that benefits others, even if it requires great sacrifice on our part. Now, where did Paul get this ambition? Where did it come from? Why did he not just have a, a passion or an ambition to stay in his local church in Antioch and to serve there and to witness to the loss? Well, we see from this passage where pa Paul's ambition came from. It came from God's word. It came from the Old Testament. That was what Paul had in his day. In verses 8 and 9, it says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promise made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, so it quotes now the first time from the Old Testament, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. 
In verse 9, Paul shows that the ultimate goal of missions is that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The ultimate goal of missions is not man-centered. It's not ultimately that men might be saved. Rather, it's God-centered. It's that people might glorify God for his mercy that he has given to them in Christ Jesus. The ultimate goal of missions is that God would receive the glory and praise that he's worthy to receive, and he's worthy to receive praise and honor and glory from every people group on the earth. Paul goes on to quote three more passages from the Old Testament in verses 10 to 12 to show the scope of the missionary task. In verse 10, 10 through 12, it says, Again it says, again, the Old Testament, the scriptures say, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise and rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. These three passages from the Old Testament, Paul quotes for, are from Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. And those are, that's the three sections of the Hebrew Bible, the law, the writings, and the prophets. And Paul quotes one from each of these three sections to show us and to show people that God's heart is for all ethnic groups, to know him and to worship him, that that truth is found throughout the whole Old Testament. And we're going to see it's in the whole New Testament as well. It's not just a concept that started with the Great Commission. Now I wonder if it sounded strange to you in verse 11 when Paul says, let all the peoples extol him. When I first read, started reading the Bible, it sounded strange to me. People's already a plural word. Why would you add an S onto a plural word? Well, it's to show us that God's heart is not just for people. It's not just for lots of individuals to come to him. It does make God happy when individuals come to him, but his purposes are much bigger than that. Scripture informs us that God's concern is not just for individuals to know him and worship him, but it's for the peoples, all the ethnic groups, all the people groups on the world to know him and worship him for his mercy displayed to us through Christ Jesus. Another good Bible study for you to do on your own is to trace these concepts of all peoples, all nations, ends of the earth, throughout the whole Bible. And you see how prevalent that theme is. It goes all the way back to God's promise to Abraham in our first talk in Genesis 12, that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. The mission's task in Scripture is both geographically focused. We're supposed to go to the ends of the earth. We have a geographical task in front of us, but it's also people group focused. We have to go to 
the ethne, the people groups that don't yet have access. How are we doing on this task? How are we doing in going to the ends of the earth and getting, making disciples of all nations, all people groups? Are there still any people groups? We're 2,000 years now later, after the Great Commission. Are there any of these people groups who would fit Paul's definition of we're making Christ known where he, we're proclaiming the gospel where Christ is not yet known. Well, the good news is that these people are called unreached people groups and they live in an, actually a very narrow band of the world. You're a very missions literate church. You probably have seen this, the 1040 window from 10 degrees north to 40 degrees north from Africa to Asia. 97% of the unreached people groups in the world live in that little rectangle of the, of the whole globe. The bad news is 97% of a large number. There are 7,400 unreached people groups that have little or no access to the gospel. And that makes up 40% of the world's population today. There's more bad news. Today's missionary force seems to have lost the ambition of Paul to go where Christ has not yet been proclaimed. Only 3% of the entire global missionary force goes to this 1040 window. Only 3% go to where the 40% of the world's population don't yet have access to the good news of the gospel. Well, what are we going to do with this information? It may surprise you that Paul didn't expect every one of us to take the same steps that he took to have fulfill this gospel ambition, to, the go, to go where those who have not yet heard about Christ how do we know this? Well, when he's writing this letter to the Romans, he doesn't tell them, all of you quit your jobs, sell everything you have, follow me, we're all going to Spain. Because Paul knows that to fulfill his ambition to proclaim Christ where he's not yet known, it takes teamwork. And we all have a different role that needs to be played for that to be fulfilled. In verse 24, he says, I hope to see you while passing through on his way to Spain. Why? So that you could assist me on my journey there. Paul needed help from other churches to fulfill his missionary task. There were needs that required financial partnership by churches. We read in verses 25 and 26, Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in service of the Lord's people, there, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's work, uh, among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. There are needs in the world that require financial help to meet them. Earthquakes, like the one in Turkey and Syria back in February. Floods, like those that occurred recently in Bangladesh and Myanmar from Cyclone Mocha. Famines, human trafficking, these kind of events require 
people and money to address them. Missionaries around the world have ministries, ministry projects that are helping reach the people they're serving and they need financial help to meet those needs. Missionaries themselves also need financial support to be able to live and serve and pay their rent and eat among the people group they're serving. We see that Paul needed this partnership himself in Philippians 4. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days from your acquaintance with the gospel, when I sent out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. It takes money to take the gospel to those without access. And Paul was willing to receive that kind of financial help for churches for this task. But Paul needed not just money. He needed something even more profound and more important than that. He needed prayer. In verse 30, he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. Now this word struggle is an interesting one. The Greek word for it is what we get the English word agonize. Praying for the world, praying for missionaries, for missions, it's hard work. It can be agonizing, it can feel like agonizing work at times. And we need to not leave all that agonizing work to the missionaries just for them to pray for. We need to join them in that agonizing work and to pray for their people group, pray for breakthroughs, that God would be merciful in drawing people to himself. We need to agonize and pray prayer for our missionaries, for their needs, their family, their spiritual health and vitality, their physical health and protection. And we need to agonize with them in prayer for their work of the gospel, for God to pour out his blessing of salvation on the people group they're serving. We see Paul asking for the prayer in this regard several times in the New Testament. I just picked three of them for us to look at, to, for, to see just how much Paul felt his need for prayer, his need for others to be interceding for him in the ministry that God had given him. Ephesians 6.19, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Now I think if Paul needed people to be praying that he would fearlessly proclaim the gospel, I'm pretty sure all of our missionaries need prayer in that way. Colossians 2.3, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray for opportunities for missionaries to be able to share the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. Pray that people will respond, that people will see it as the good news that it is and respond in faith. This passage is one of many that make 
John Piper conclude that there, when it comes to global missions, there's really only three kinds of Christians. There are Christians who are zealous goers, like Paul, Silas, Timothy, people who are going to feel that compulsion, that ambition to go and take Christ where he's not yet known. There's also zealous senders, like the church in Antioch, the church in Philippi, the church in Rome, churches that prayed and financially supported to send those goers. Zealous goers, zealous senders, and disobedient. If you're not doing either of those, you're being a disobedient Christian, not participating in the Great Commission. Now, I know none of you want to be in that third category. So we all have to figure out, does God want me to be a zealous goer or a zealous sender? And I've actually been praying for this God to use this weekend in the hearts of one or two of you to feel that compulsion that I want to have that ambition of Paul. I want to go. But I've also been praying for the whole, all of you of Southwest Evangelical, that all of you would desire to be a zealous sender, to give sacrificially, to pray for those that God sends out from your church to go. That you as a church, individually but also corporately, that you will be agonizing in prayer for your missionaries and their ministry. Now John Piper, he lived in kind of this remote place in America, wasn't like Sydney that was very diverse multi-culturally. So I've added to John Piper a fourth category. Just don't write him and tell him. Um, <laughs> but you can also be a zealous welcomer. We have in Sydney large number of immigrants, international students, refugees, asylum seekers that are coming from that 1040 window. They're, they're coming from those countries where they've had no access to the gospel. God's brought them here, and now they have the chance to have access. Kathy and I, we've only lived here for two years, but already we've met personally, have met and talked to people from countries in the 1040 window, like Vietnam, China, Cambodia, India, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Indonesia, Egypt, Bangladesh, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Turkey, and Afghanistan. And I'm sure if I had checked this with Kathy, she would say, oh, you forgot this person and that person. There's probably more on that list. But we have a tremendous diversity in Sydney of people coming from unreached people groups. Now, statistics show whether it's Australia, Sydney, or if it's in America, it's the same dynamic. The vast majority of these people in our midst, especially international students and refugees, never once get invited into the home of an Australian. So we would like to see that change. We would like to be known as a community of zealous welcomers who are going to invite these people to our homes, have meals with them, and share about the hope that lives within you. While we were living in Washington, D.C., Kathy and I um, 
started a ministry of, of going and visiting Afghan refugees that were coming to our area. Because we had heard the statistic that um, so few of them ever had an American come to their home or ever had gone to the home of Americans. So we decided we wanted that to change in our area. We, started, we connected with a resettlement agency. And when people came, we would go and visit them in their home and take cookies or uh, gifts. We'd find, out, we, we'd find out what they needed, and we would try to find it um, and help them with those needs. But we, one family we went to visit. It was right at Easter time. So I asked the husband, um, oh, we have this big holiday coming up Easter. Do you know what the meaning is? And he said, oh, yeah, I know the meaning. And I, I was a little bit surprised. He said, um, back in Afghanistan, I worked for a Western military personnel. And at Easter, they would decorate the dining hall with bunnies and painted eggs and chocolate. And I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's some of the cultural ways that Easter gets celebrated. But do you know what the meaning is? And I said, before Easter is f what's called Good Friday. And that's when Jesus died on the cross and for our sins, to, to bear our sins. And then on Easter, on Sundays, when he rose from the dead to show that he had authority to forgive sins and to defeat the powers uh, of um, evil powers of Satan and to take away our shame. And when I got done, his countenance totally changed. And I couldn't tell if it was sadness or confusion or if it was a bit of both. But all he said to me was, no one ever told me that before. And I thought he had had interaction, I'm assuming, with these military personnel. There were some believers. Uh, but he had never heard that simple truth of Good Friday and Easter. So let's share this ambition of Paul. And let's make intentional effort to go to these people from unreached people groups that God's bringing to Sydney. Perhaps by his grace, they'll come to faith, and then when they go back to their home country for funerals or weddings or for holidays, they'll take that good news with them. Hudson Taylor was a well-known British missionary to China. And one day, as he often did, he was preaching the gospel to a group of non-Christian Chinese. When he finished a speaking, a man named Ni stood up. And in front of the whole crowd, Ni said, I have long sought the truth, but without finding it. In Confu Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, I have found no rest. But I do find rest in what I've heard tonight. Henceforth, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Nee became an ardent student of the Bible with a fervent witness to the lost. And one day he was out walking with Hudson Taylor, and he said to Hudson Taylor, how long have you had the glad tidings in your country? Well, that made Hudson Taylor uncomfortable, and he said, well, some hundreds of years. Nee replied, what? Hundreds of years? Oh, my father sought the truth and died without finding it. Why did you not come sooner? The pain of that moment stuck with Hudson Taylor, and it made him realize they needed to get beyond the coastlands and go inland to all those people like Nee's father who were seeking the truth but had no access to it. How many knees are there in the world today? 
in the Hindu world, the Buddhist world, the Muslim world, who are still waiting for someone who has the ambition of Paul to come and share the gospel with them? Is God calling you to be a zealous goer or a zealous sender? And will you be a zealous welcomer to those from unreached people God, groups that God has brought to our city? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would fill us with this ambition of Paul. May we have a fervent desire to go or to send those that you're calling from this church to go. And Lord, I thank you by your grace, you're bringing so many unreached people, people from so many unreached people groups here to Sydney. And I pray that you would give us intentionality and energy and zeal to meet, meet them, reach out to them, visit them, invite them to our homes, and to share this great news of Jesus with them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.